Good evening to our neighbors and listeners. Coming to you live from the 215 here in Germantown, you are listening to the award-winning Infohub Hour with Rashida Jamu, a.k.a. Philly's Freedom Join. Maleka isn't here with us today, but she will be back with us on the September 15th episode of the Infohub Hour. The Infohub Hour is exploring all things happening in Germantown and the city of Philadelphia and covering them in an hour or less. You can check out what is going on by visiting our website at germantowninfohub.org, on Twitter and Instagram at gtowninfohub, or on Facebook at germantowninfohub. So today on the Infohub Hour, we are focusing on Black Business Month, talking about none other than Black businesses. We are exploring the historical significance of them in our neighborhood and how people can continue to show up to sustain them. We'll hear from our collection of voices, including a few of your favorite neighborhood black business owners, adding to the rich culture of this community. And after that, we will hear a blast from the past as we listen to one of the old but never out of style Germantown Voices tapes. We will hear from Vashti Du Bois about her journey to Germantown and making the Four Colored Girls Museum. So adjust your speakers, neighbors, because the show is starting now. Yesterday was the last day of Black Business Month. And if you aren't aware, Germantown is no stranger to Black businesses with its legacy in the neighborhood. Historical markers placed around Germantown show the existence of Black enterprise dating back to the 1800s that has helped to advance the neighborhood's culture. Many of these Black businesses, past and present, were staples in Germantown neighborhood, providing essential needs to people like food, clothes, hardware, pharmaceutical, and much more. Monica O. Montgomery, the Director of Community Engagement and Programs at Historic Germantown, talks about the legacy of these businesses and what it meant for Black people then and now. Three of the things I'd like to highlight, as I mentioned, some of the historic and contemporary Black businesses are these themes of emancipation, right? What does it mean to liberate our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our station in life to have upward mobility and pursue freedom in a capitalist society where often freedom equals money, right? And then entrepreneurship. How can we as individuals, as collectives, as people forming corporations, literally sustain and create intergenerational wealth using business as a tool to help set our families up for success and our communities for success? How do we build businesses that outlast us? Monica also took the time to talk about some of the historical businesses like C.A. Rawells or the John Trower Building and current businesses, some of whom we'll hear from later on, like Black Soul Vintage, Mbuntu, Fine Art Gallery, Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books, Bistro on the Mall, and more. As I think of, you know, walking down Germantown Avenue in that section closest to Vernon Park, um, first I want to shout out the kind of non-traditional Black business that often gets overlooked, which is street vendors, right? How often is it that people start something by putting out a table and a tablecloth and some chairs and putting whatever their wares are on the table? There are so many folks in Philadelphia that sell plates, right? Or that sell 
gifts, costume, jewelry, clothing, anything can go on a table. And often the things you find in a street vendor far surpass what you find in a store. And so there are many vendors um, contemporarily and historically that have been situated around these commercial corridors, Germantown Avenue, Shelton Avenue, Wayne Avenue, and definitely want to shout them out and not give them short shrift. There's also been a plethora of beauty salons and barbershops in the area. The Philadelphia Hair Company um, is iconic and still in the mix. And there are barbershops adjacent to that um, that you could see today that have really become these centers for Black life, for celebration, for people feeling safe and feeling free. Um, if we think back, I found the name. <laughs> John S. Trower, who is an African-American man who was a caterer in his heyday in the Victorian era, um, one of the most wealthy African-Americans in the 1800s and one of the wealthiest men in the state. He began as a caterer in the space where the Crab House now is, which is very close to Germantown and Shelton. And he went on to cater for inaugurations, for special balls, for people who were white and black because his food was that tasty and he was that legendary. He often saw catering and the serving of food to be a skill that can elevate people out of poverty and provide jobs and economic empowerment. So he went on to open a trade school, which taught people the art of culinary skills and catering, as well as created a savings and loan bank for Black residents, which often financed the local churches. So John S. Trower, gets a super, super big highlight and shout out. And there is a historical marker in front of the Crab House um, on Germantown Avenue to show where that property is. I also wanna shout out, um, you know, an individual who while, you know, certainly everyone in the 1800s, early 1900s had to have some kind of enterprise, but paved a way um, for people who were coming, escaping slavery, to get settled. And that is William Still, um, the noted abolitionist who was known to hang out around the Johnson House and other parts of town to keep company with legendary people like Harriet Tubman, um, and who was a documenter of African-Americans on the Underground Railroad escaping enslavement. And he was someone who often was helping people find their freedom and establish it by getting people set up with the basic essentials, right? Housing and a job. So even though he himself wasn't what we would call a modern entrepreneur, he helped people establish themselves and find their stability. Thinking of a modern uh, resurgence for a historic Black business that was dormant for a while, and I just read today that they are coming back in a new fashion, Raoul's Department Store, also at the corner of Germantown and Shelton, was opened by an African-American man, Curtis W. Cisco Sr. He became the first African-American owner of a department store. And this was right at the southeast corner of Shelton and Germantown around the early 70s, 1973, 1974. He was a former police officer and he purchased the store and kept it up. And they were known to have the flyest fashions the most amazing suits and again, be an epicenter for black life. Um, the store closed later on um, as you know, integration and other economic forces changed uh, what was happening in the neighborhood. And it has set empty for a while at different times. It's had life as a, a drugstore um, and other kinds of stores. But I just read today in Hidden City, Philadelphia, that it is now coming back. <laughs> it's being converted into a 
Apartments. And I'll share this link with you. Um, and it's probably going to go the way of a multi-use apartment property, hopefully with some affordable housing. Um, but it's really exciting to see how a building like that can have new life um, and how the imprint of the African-American fashions will hopefully follow it throughout all its different iterations and eras, because this was once a thriving shopping district. Shelton Avenue was the place to go. When I think of other um, centers for shopping, I have to give an honorable shout out to Maplewood Mall, um, which has had many Black businesses there over the years that have come and go. Um, before its most current renovation, there was a restaurant that I used to eat at. And again, this is not historic. This is more contemporary, I would say, in the early 2000s. Um, called uh, Tom and Diane's, it might've been Diane and Tom's. They had the best turkey chops <laughs> and just really good quality soul food. And the owners would often hang out and talk with you. And I know there are many other businesses that you might know more about Rashid that were in Maplewood Mall, um, some that have transitioned and some that remain. Another thing to note, and I'm kind of hopping back between history and the modern day, but all thinking and referencing Black business, is all of the recreation that Germantown Avenue has offered over the years till today. There are several banquet halls in the area, um, treasures, champagnes. <laughs> I know there's one that closed. And those are spaces for Black life in its fullest forms. People come to dance, to celebrate, to party, birthdays, holidays, divorce parties. It's really excited to see um, those places thrive. And even if I think of other Black restaurants, not on Germantown Avenue, but in the Northwest Corridor, thinking of those that have closed like Platinum Grill um, and Morgan's, um, where I've had many a meal. Um, <laughs> yes, we've all had our time. And then thinking of, you know, bars going a little adjacent, if we think of Lou and Choose, which is a little closer down North Philly, but still honorable mention. There's so many spaces that people have come to recreate, to celebrate, to have a good time. Um, also on that same corridor, as we go up towards the Market Square Park of Germantown Avenue of businesses and Black spaces that currently exist, the Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity House, um, which you know was founded in 1922 for that Philadelphia chapter and does a lot of community work, outreach work. Um, Mark Lamont Hill, the author and owner of Uncle Bobby's, another notable Black business, is a Kappa along with Rep. Steve Kinsey. Um, so they are holding it down and have been. The Malefe Kete Asante Institute, uh, the scholar Dr. Malefe Asante, who celebrates Pan-Africanism and often teaches at Temple Studies around Africana and African-American studies, has situated his scholarly headquarters there, and they also do programming. And then again, modern day, a little further down the street, there's a new um, Black thrift shop that has opened called Black Soul Vintage um, that sells premium upcycled <laughs> uh, goods, clothing, uh, record um, uh, covers and all kinds of cool things that I've seen there as well as their own line of tote bags and t-shirts. So Black Soul Vintage is down the block of, um, I think that is Church Lane. So East Church Lane, Uncle Bobby's we mentioned, Ubuntu we mentioned. So there's a lot of Black businesses today um, that are doing amazing and significant things, along with the sites that are part of historic Germantown that are telling the African-American story. We could consider a museum or a gallery um, a business of sorts, certainly of community uplift, the Black Writers Museum, 
the Lest We Forget Slavery Museum, um, and of course, the Johnson House. The Info Hub spoke with various Black business owners around the Germantown neighborhood and asked them about their thoughts and experiences. When speaking with them, some cited some of the same themes Monica raised, like empowerment, as the significance of being a Black business owner in the community. And one in particular talked about wanting to be that empowerment model for future business owners. Nomad, the street artist and owner of Good Samaritan Creative Company, which operates online, says that not growing up within proximity to entrepreneurship left him feeling like he didn't have many options for career paths. Uh, as somebody who grew up in Germantown, I feel like it's important for me to establish a, bu a business here because I understand how rich the community is as far as culture. Um, and people would appreciate something that I'm bringing to them. Um, just knowing what's been here before and what people have, uh, what's been able to exist before. I feel like it's important because, again, you could show people that it doesn't have to be like downtown for it to be a place where you could thrive. Like, you get what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's people who support people everywhere in the city. So having a business in Germany, like people kind of forget about Germantown. Um, and I feel like it's the most artistic part of the city, like the most eclectic part of the city <clears throat> has like the most culture. People here have like, I would say like they're the most forward thinking. Just having this business in Germantown, I feel like, uh, and just being from here, I really wouldn't even want my, I wouldn't want my roots of my business to be like to, I wouldn't want it to be anywhere but in Germantown. I like being an example to other people if they wanted to, if they had any idea or they wanted to pursue this type of dream that they could do it too. Or if they had a passion for it, it's something that they could do. Just being in Germantown with my business, it, it's funny because I just growing up in Germantown, I never thought I was going to be a business owner. I thought I was going to be an athlete. And then actually... I remember just so many different black businesses in Germantown and I never even seen myself in that position. Like my mom and all her sisters, they're teachers. And my grandfather, he worked for the Enquirer. One of my other grandmothers, she worked for like the government. So you get what I'm saying? It's like, no, I didn't have anybody in my family that was a business owner. Like maybe if like my dad or my mom or somebody was a business owner, I would have grown up seeing that and being like, oh, okay. Like, this is what we doing or and they passed that down to me or whatever but it just wasn't it was something that wasn't even on my radar it's a full circle moment i guess you could say even though that wasn't something that i was thinking about but I, that i was able to pivot and it's just uh it's pretty cool i would say steven cw taylor the owner of ubuntu fine art gallery is also native to Germantown and is particularly interested in the archival and documentation aspect of Black businesses. Stephen talks about how it's hard to find inspiration and empowerment when there is no data publicly available to the knowledge of the community. It's not as easy to find uh, um, inspiration through people who look like you that have done it before, you know, at a really high level within the any historical context of how you learn about historic Germantown or the place that we are. So how do I know the business that was here 50 years ago that was black owned and operated at the highest level amongst all of the other, you know, uh, department stores and things like that, that you, that 
littered Germantown slash Shelton Avenue, um, you know, 50, 40, 50 years ago, when this was a bustling commercial corridor um, that was, you know, heavily integrated with a lot of variety of businesses, a lot of variety of those owners were, you know, of different demographics. So, um, you know, we, I'm trying to figure out, I try to put this into the right context. Um, so that way is, 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 is clear to the fact that black businesses need to a historical legacy through documentation and archived attributes about themselves. So where is the data of those black businesses so that I can then find inspiration as a person that's, you know, currently, you know, trying to operate a black business that may be a boutique or a, or a little bit more unique um, along a corridor that now has a lot of very, very, very similar businesses that are black owned. Um, and we want a, a little bit more variety. So um, I'm happy to be here personally, you know, as a, as a, as a black business and as a black business owner. And I, I want other black businesses that operate um, their boutiques or anything else like that, not to take them to other places, but to bring them here. So that way, you know, another 30 years, as we document the historical legacy of the businesses that are already here, those images are, are in that continent archived within the Germantown Historical Society alongside the other stories of, 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 of historic proportion um, that pretty much this space is known for. Um, and I kind of call that making new history in, in historic space with black faces. While Steven is a Germantown native, he did move away from the neighborhood for a few years. I asked him about what the significance was about owning a black business here in Germantown. And this is what he had to say. So when I was, you know, in DC, uh, uh, working at my corporate firm, I was able to experience blackness at a really high corporate level. Um, so a lot of my colleagues and a lot of my counterparts, you know, six figure earners and, you know, life for them is a little more leisurely, even though they have to work in order to maintain their leisurely lifestyle. In Philadelphia, you know, it's a, it's a little bit more grit. It's a little, a little more hustle. Um, so a lot of my counterparts now are entrepreneurs that still make six figure salaries. They just got to go to the mud and get it, you know, every single day um, that they're in business or that they're going to be operating. So I felt it vitally important to bring my art gallery back to my community and my neighborhood because I have a firm belief that art helps to culture people and art helps to create new questions um, that, you know, somebody that may not have even been aware that they wanted to pose this question, whether to Google or YouTube or something to gain a new skill, um, you know, art can be a vehicle for that. And as I'm developing it and then I'm building it, you know, people are suggesting I go to Rittenhouse Square and Old City and Chestnut Hill. And I'm like, well, that's that's not a mile from my house. So that doesn't make any sense. And how does that how does that benefit, you know, my community? Uh, just a, a random passerby, a young young folks that might go to picket that are walking home, the, the, the anybody that just might be traversing the gallery. How does that benefit them if I'm not walking to work, if I'm if I'm not in the mix of the community and I say, I got this nice thing, you know, you can come by from it, but it's not really for you. It's for all the other people that have come. Um, and to that point, affluence will always travel to art when, you know, uh, poorness, not that they can't, but they're not as, as, as privy to travel to art. So uh, Philadelphia is a, is a hub for art, you know, internationally, people come to 
the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Barnes Foundation, you know, the Rodin Museum from all around the country. You know, but I'm hard pressed to, you know, find a young boy on, on my block, Chewing Locust, that's been to the art gallery. You know, I mean, not, not to the art gallery, but to the art museum. And that's a bus ride away, a train ride away. You know, um, they've been to Del Frisco's, but they haven't been to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. So if I can make it um, a, a shorter trip, you can come and experience my stuff. And then hopefully, you know, you have a, a deeper appreciation for art, one as a viewer, but also as a collector. And, you know, you'll that art that you're consuming and experiencing, you know, may help you to propose new questions to your children and to your um, to your grandchildren, but also give you, you know, you might have not known how much you like art. And then you'll take a trip to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And then you'll take a trip to the to, to the Barnes Foundation and the Rodin Museum. Um, and then say, man, I, I really do like this art thing. Let me go check out this person who's displaying here or this person who's displaying here. So, you know, I, I do pride myself that my business is able to create and facilitate new questions. Relating directly to Stephen's sentiments, Monica shares that she and others at Historic Germantown have uncovered an old black business directory called The Souvenir and why that was an important finding. We have discovered in our archive that is being made public celebrating black business. There was an early era black business yellow pages, y'all. Going back to 1913, there's a document called the Souvenir of Germantown, a who's who of Black businesses and spaces of note in Northwest Philadelphia made by and for, FUBU, by and for the Black community by a local publisher, a Black man named William Ball, William Ball of Ball Press. And this was issued during the 50th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation, which many feel was the impetus to help end um, the terribly savage practice of slavery. And so with that and people celebrating that, there was a way that people were hoping to build community by having a literal directory. And this directory isn't just, you know, name, address. There are pictures, right? There's captions mentioning different types of prominent residences, entrepreneurs, schools and civic infrastructure, masonry lodges, talking about the shops that are brick and mortar and some of the more professional um, offerings like uh, doctor's offices, accountants, lawyers, and having the, 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 the strength to coalesce all of this in the face of a time when there was a lot of racial tension when the KKK and other white supremacist groups were active in Germantown. And to say, you all might have your mainstream directory, but we have the souvenir of Germantown and we are history makers and making history. It would have been essential reading for any black person in the early 20th century. And thinking of that facet of cooperative economics, which is often celebrated during Kwanzaa, and other liberation holidays, how Black people at that time had to shop with one another, had to do business with one another for safety, because if they walked into a white establishment, integration had not yet come, they would be rudely denied and oftentimes harmed, and to get their needs met. So even the way that later in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and on and on, the Green Book became the resource of choice became the place of choice where people would look for black businesses where they could figure out how to travel, how to navigate this country. The souvenir of Germantown was doing that work in the early 1900s. When we talk about the sustainability of black businesses moving forward, it's essential to highlight their recurring challenges. 
For black business owners, some are questioning the consistency of support in the last few years. In 2020, many black businesses across the United States witnessed a surge of support after the death of George Floyd. There were many phrases that people picked up as a result of the black-led uprisings and unrest that emerged across the country. Solidarity Not Charity, Listen to Black Women, and Say Her Name are just a few to name as examples. But there's no surprise that Support Black Businesses was one of many used not only as awareness, but as an action step to build a more equitable United States moving forward. But as we move over two years beyond a fundamental moment in Black radical history, some Black business owners question if the support was real or if it was just a trend for the time being. Owner of Black Soul Vintage, Tamara Sankara Kilambo, offers her experiences on this matter, talking about having what it felt like an overwhelming support years before losing that consistency now. In the aftermath of uh, the pandemic, the so-called after aftermath, as if, as if it's done, um, but as we move further away from the epicenter or the climax of this thing that we we've been experiencing, I, I, I would say that I have experienced kind of a downturn in support overall. Um, when there was a point at the height of the pandemic, I couldn't upload things fast enough. People, it, stuff was flying off the shelf. Everything was selling. Everybody was reposting. Everybody wanted to share. Everybody wanted to tell somebody to tell somebody to tell somebody um, it was very much almost overwhelming the amount of support and just uh, sharing and caring that was going on around different Black businesses that I really appreciated. So many people were putting out lists of places you should support, places you should shop, um, this, that, and the third. So I do think that there has been a decline. I've talked to other business owners. They also feel that way, that there has been um, a bit of a decline. And that overall, right, not just in necessarily support of your business, but just the media um, outpouring of support and like locally folks just wanting to figure out who they can support. Um, it was it, it was giving fad. It was giving I'm doing this because all of a sudden I feel bad about black people. This is a lot of white folks that were supporting as well. Um, and I kind of want some of that back. Tamara was open about what she feels is the biggest challenge for her business, which turned three months in August, and then an overall challenge for the neighborhood. It's foot traffic. There's not. I'm 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 a hidden gem, so I'm a little off off center. But I I do still feel like even if I was right on the avenue, we just don't have that foot traffic. Um, like I think was present in the neighborhood in previous years, just from my research and, and seeing archival photos of, of Germantown and what it used to look like. Um, it's just not that many folks moving around in that way anymore. On foot, ready to pop into a business. Um, also up and down the avenue, most of those businesses are gone. Those unique um, small businesses are gone. Um, so it's not a lot of folks really checking for nothing around here. They trying to go to McDonald's, they trying to go to Family Dollar, and then they trying to hop on the bus and dip. So I think that is like a major thing that I wish um, could improve is just overall foot traffic in the whole of the area. Um, and I think also Germantown being not center city, right? Like it does take a little bit more effort for folks to come up here. Um, 
a lot of like tourists aren't necessarily encouraged to come up here, which I find crazy because we have so much of the uh, white history that <laughs> that they promote in this city as being the the backbone of this city um, is up here and it's not really promoted. I don't see bus tours taking you from Old City up to Germantown so you can see George Washington's house or a stop on the Underground Railroad or, you know, Revolutionary War battle areas like, and that's all up here. So I'm actually really shocked at the city's overall lack of engagement with the area when it speaks to so much of what they try um, to promote as far as tourism is concerned. Tamara says that one of the significant ways people support Black businesses effectively is simply by sharing them. She says that telling people and posting about your favorite Black businesses will help to sustain them. Nomad and Steven say that money and creative space are necessities to keep their respective businesses afloat. Monica Montgomery says it's not one thing, but many that will help sustain Black businesses in the neighborhood as time progresses. I think it's a mix of things. If we think of it as a, a recipe, right? Of what do we stir into the soup so that the soup is flavorful, it tastes good, everyone feels full <laughs> and that it is nutritious. I think one of the main things Black businesses need is visibility because as I was taught in my marketing classes at Temple back in the day, if no one knows you exist, you're not in business. And that actually goes for nonprofits too. Side note, that's another show. <laughs> but if it is the case, and I'm calling out all my folks <laughs> who know who they are, nonprofits I work with. So if it is the case that a Black business launches and maybe they have the money and the capital to fix up a brick and mortar space and to get the merchandise or the supplies or the services and the technology infrastructure needed, if they're able to muster to even pay a part-time staff member and do all of that, but maybe they only had 100 bucks left to put an ad in the paper. Maybe they're not savvy in writing press releases or don't know how to connect to the media to get the word out. Maybe they are just literally opening the door hoping someone comes in. It's a flawed business model. It is a valiant effort and they should still exist and they should still start, but you really have to do a concerted push seasonally, year round at all times to get people knowing you exist. So the other day, me and my husband, after the photo walk that we did with partnership with Ubuntu Fine Arts Gallery and council member at large, Isaiah Thomas, um, we were hungry and I'm like, oh, I'd love to go to brunch locally. Who is a black restaurant that has brunch? So I started asking people that walked up to the photo walk, asked some of my team, and I got some great names and I got names of restaurants that I didn't even know were there, which made me happy and sad at the same time. Happy because I'm like, oh, Urban Adventure exclusive. It won't be too packed. <laughs> we'll get in there. We'll get some good food. But sad that like, why haven't they been brought to my attention where, you know, as a marketer, I'm thinking, where are they marketing? Where are they putting the word out? And how are they 
managing if they're not putting the word out. And so I know directly that that press, that visibility, that constant outreach, that putting things out there leads to increased revenue, right? And market share. And that is one of the ways to grow your business. You can have all the business coaches you want from SCORE and all these other great places. And certainly you could apply for small business grants and loans, but if you cannot secure an audience and a market, you're going to struggle. So visibility slash press high on the list. I think a lot of Black businesses need someone or several someones who could kind of almost have like a like a done for you in a box um, suite of services to help you get set up properly. Because a lot of folks just hit the street, start selling something or jump out there and be like, I did this thing, support me. But creating a back end where you have your accounting right, where you have legal advisement, if not a lawyer, where you have your certifications and licenses that were done the right way, having all of that set, where you're closely looking at contracts and making sure they favor you, where you're thinking about, are you paying yourself properly from the proceeds, from the profits, from the, the net? <laughs> like, how can you set it up for success at the beginning so that it could continue to operate? Because oftentimes when businesses will go for loans um, or anything that requires kind of bank approval, government approval, they want to see your books. They want to see your operating structure. And if that is there, you're kind of trying to pull it together and you're at a loss um, and you're scrambling. And so people need that help. Not everyone is inclined to do that element of the business, but I think that's essential. Lastly, I'll just say we have to love up on our Black businesses and not give up on them. So Black businesses need patience from the audience, from the customer for growing pains. <laughs> and this makes me think of the age-old argument of like, should you go to a Black restaurant if the food is cold and it comes out slow? Could you have spent your dollars elsewhere? I'm not here to make judgments or answer to that, but I do feel like we have to give grace and space for all sorts of Black business entities as they grow into their own. And that was Monica O. Montgomery, Stephen C.W. Taylor, Tamara Sankar, Quilombo, and Nomad talking about the history and future of black businesses in Germantown. When we return, we will hear from Vashti Du Bois on her story from the Germantown Voices Archive. Stay tuned, we will be right back. My husband and uh, my three children and I moved to Germantown from Brooklyn, New York. We are transplants to Philadelphia, but this was actually my third trip back to Philadelphia. I, I actually quit Philadelphia three times before returning with my family to create a home here. And I really wanted to live in Germantown because it was something about Germantown that actually reminded me of Brooklyn and still does. I don't know exactly what that is, but it was just a feeling. We came because while we were in New York, that's when the Twin Towers came down. And it was so traumatic. I worked in Harlem at the time. It was so traumatic going back and forth to work every day that I finally said to my husband, you know, 
think we need to move. I think we need to leave New York because it just feels, it just feels precarious here. And so I suggested Philadelphia, which he was having none of initially, but then I showed him house prices and he said, okay, I'll look, but I'm not committed. And so we came and we looked at a couple of places and then he got really excited because we knew that by the time we'd moved back to Brooklyn, we knew that we'd never be able to own anything there. Bed-Stuy, I grew up in Brownsville. These were neighborhoods that had been redlined. These same neighborhoods, you know, Bed-Stuy, where we were living at the time when we returned from Boston, you know, the median price of a house was $1.5 million. So, you know, we knew with our three children and our artistic, you know, social justice backgrounds that we were not gonna be able to afford a home there. We, we looked in Philadelphia and German, this house was probably the third house that we looked at. And my husband brought it to me. It was on like a, you know, it was in a listing. You know, none of us had the cell phones we have now. So it was like a really grainy black and white photograph. There was something about the photograph that for both of us said, oh, that looks like it could be our home. And it took us three, three tries to get into the house, but eventually we got in. And um, there was a photograph on the refrigerator of a little girl. And my daughter looked at the photograph and said, mom, doesn't that look like Rosie? And I looked at it and I said, kind of, but get out of my way so I could see my house. Cause I already felt like this was my home. And, you know, we went, uh, we were on our way upstairs. My daughter went upstairs before we got there and she came out of the room with two things. Um, one of those handprint things that all the children make in kindergarten and um, a frame. Um, something that I had made for my girlfriend Wanda when she was leaving Wesleyan to go off to graduate school. It had a picture of both our little girls, you know, with school dresses and bags because they were in, they were, they were respectively two years old when she went to Albany and I had given her that as a gift. So it turns out that this, the home that we purchased in Germantown, was actually uh, owned by a former classmate of mine and her husband, really her husband. And I think that's the first and only time in my life that I fainted because I had lost touch with Wanda. Now I'm standing up in her house and they were selling it because they're gonna move to Vermont. So that pretty much uh, sealed the deal. I just felt like we could have kept looking and I'm sure we'd have found something that we loved even more. There's a lot to love in Germantown, but it felt like this is exactly where we were supposed to be. So Wanda and I were reunited and we wound up moving into 4613 Newhall Street. You know, again, as folks come in who grew up in New York City, both my husband and I, we're just blown away by the fact that there was so much black ownership in Philadelphia because that's really not the case uh, in New York City. So we were really excited about that and to be moving into a neighborhood that was working class and predominantly black and being able to raise our kids um, like that. It was just been interesting being here because Germantown 
not unlike Bed-Stuy when we were there, it doesn't, there's so much, there's some things that you can do here, but it really made us both think about, you know, what it means to really build, like build up a community. Because you, you have to leave Germantown. It had, we have supermarkets that are okay. Um, but there's so much that you have to leave Germantown to go get from someplace else. And we know that part of what drives economy, you know, and part of what builds powerful commercial corridors and makes neighborhoods um, economically rich is the, the opportunity for other people to come to your neighborhood and buy stuff and enrich your neighborhood. And so one of the things when we moved to Newhall Street that we got really excited about was an idea um, that I named Fort Mom. And that idea was to really try to get some other folks we knew to consider moving to Philadelphia to, and, and also to create a co-op system in the neighborhood because these houses are old. And we thought like if we could create like a co-op system, then with these old houses with so many working class black folks, we could buy things collectively, like if you needed new windows, if you needed new systems, like how could we pool resources? Because one of the things that's really difficult about owning these old houses is being able to care for them. Again, as artists, these were issues that were near and dear personally, because we were always fighting to stay in our home once we got our home. Fort Mom was this idea where we were gonna take our house and make it a show house. So we were going to try to apply the idea that we had to really building up the infrastructure of this old house as culture, as like artists. And then we would open up our house to the public, we, you know, making one part of it like a public space, a cultural institution, so that we could really think about how could the arts drive community development and economic development and how could neighbors really sort of install their home space as cultural space for like two or three times a year where you open up the part that's the cultural space to the community. Um, you talk about the resources that were pooled to be able to like, you know, fix your chimney, um, restore your porch, all of those things. Unfortunately, we never got to that. My husband and I were kings and queens of like great ideas. But what we did get to was a project that we did in 2012 called the Eviction Proof Peep Show Home. So what I was able to convince my husband to do was, uh, I said, well, why don't we just put the majority of our furniture in storage so that the house is hollowed out? Now, my kids were still living here, at least the, the youngest and the, and the middle child. And what we will do is we will recruit artists and assign them to every room in the house to tell a story artistically about the impact of foreclosure. Because of course you can be foreclosed on in a home, but you can also be foreclosed on in a relationship. You can be foreclosed on in a school situation. So we want people to personalize that and to tell that story artistically in every room in our home. Because who knows better than you or I, like what is so painful about really disclosing that you, that you need help, that you're in danger of losing your home. So the idea was that the house was staging the people instead of the people staging the house. 
because the house wanted to tell its story. The house wanted to make an argument um, for why houses needed to save their people so that the people could also advocate for the houses. And so it was a really, it was, it's one of the, it's one of the, my most favorite things that we did. It was very tongue in cheek. Um, it was a 15 minute show. The reason it was eviction proof was that the idea was really, how do we make ourselves eviction proof um, as a community? The reason it was a peep show is that we were really thinking about what the atmosphere was uh, between 2008 and 2011 when so many people were losing their homes and how it was, it was a, you know, as the news reported on it, it was almost voyeuristic because, um, you know, people's belongings were in the street. People were just um, turning in their keys and walking away from their homes. There were stories about homes in Florida where alligators had moved into the pools because there were no people there. So you get a peep at what this family is going through. And one of the ways that it functioned is that one of our artists on the top floor, um, she took a, um, a family portrait of us. She made five copies because there were five of us. And the way that the show started is you started on the third floor and you decided as an audience member who in the family you wanted to travel through the house as. So there was, a, since there was a mirror over all faces, once she took the photograph, then you were part of the family album. And you basically were traveling through the house with that perspective. Um, and each room had a different story. My husband was the house troubadour. He sang you from room to room. Uh, and then he ushered you out the back door. That was sort of the coming together of us really thinking about how can the art uh, that we love and that we do, how can it be a platform for really getting important information out to, to people that we think deserve to have that information. So the Colored Girls Museum, my husband was killed in a car accident. Um, it will be March 30th, will be seven years ago. And my recovery from that had a great deal to do with then using really the model of eviction-proof peep show home as a way of really celebrating ordinary, extraordinary Black women and girls um, through the submission of art and artifact that's significant to our experiences. My husband and I um, have known each other since we were like seventh, eighth grade. He was a year older than me. We went to school together in Brooklyn. We never dated. Uh, we ran into each other in Boston. We got married. We had our we, we got pregnant with our with our third child. So he brought the oldest. I brought the girl. We collaborated on the third, and the rest, as they say, um, is history. I was just really angry at how many people kept telling me that I was strong, that I, you know, I just needed to get on with my life, that I should do this, that I should do that. And just really thinking about how uh, Black women are never given an opportunity to be human, to be out for the count, to be broken. And that had me thinking about you know, Eric Gardner's family, his, his daughters, his wife in New York City, just all of the ways in which 
you know, um, you know, black women go through devastation on a public stage and there's no opportunity to just be with your ordinary pain. And what that does to you. I got my godmother, you know, asked me on a trip to New York because uh, I guess I was looking pretty out of my body at that point. She said, what do you want to do? I had no idea what I wanted to do because truth is I didn't really want to do anything. But like I heard myself saying to her, I want to create a colored girls museum. Hell, I didn't even know what that was. I don't know where that came from. And so she said, she asked me to tell her about it. And so I answered as best I could, or that other girl in me, the busybody, answered as best she could while I rolled my eyes, because I didn't want to do nothing. And um, you know, we and we we created this in the fringe, uh, the Colored Girls Museum opened for business in 2015. And I did an open call to some folks that I knew to ask them if they would participate. I was terrified to do that because I hadn't given people enough time. I couldn't really explain to them what the concept was. People would say, a colored girls museum, what's that? And since it had not been done before, I couldn't, there wasn't a model I could point to. All I could say in, in indignation is, well, if I said I was gonna do a shoe museum, what would you think that was about? And then there were questions about, well, why are you using the word colored? And I said, I use the word colored because I just think about all the ways in which black women and girls are colored by everybody in the world. Colored strong, colored too aggressive, colored too needy, colored not in need of protection. Just how the world takes its Crayola crayon and just colors us whatever the hell people feel like they wanna color us. And so that's why it's colored. It's the Girls Museum because you know, I have found for myself, and I, I, I found that it's also true for, for many other uh, Black women, that so much of where you retreat to in times of great distress are the things you did or did not have in girlhood. And how girlhood, Black girlhood, is a sacred place that never gets um, the protection, praise, and grace that it requires and deserves because you have to go back to those places, right? Or you get thrown back to those places when you're hurt because your hurts come when you're a little girl, a little black girl. And I say to people, a lot of people are like, well, why, you know, like why girlhood? Um, and what do you mean by that? And I say to people, you know, the moment you come screaming into this world and you're a little black girl and somebody says, it's a girl, a series of things move into motion that are going to determine what your life is going to be in that moment. We share that experience. Whatever we decide to become later on, that how we're shaped by it's a girl <laughs> in Black girlhood is a thing. And I really wanted to celebrate that and acknowledge that. And one part of that also was that uh, my late husband loved my girl. You know, he like he knew that girl. He loved that girl. And, uh, you know, and that girl was hurting. So it was a way of really letting her know it was going to be all right.
I was going to take good care of her. Um, you know, I was going to get back there, so she should not worry about that. And so the Colored Girls Museum was born. And these inaugural artists were about numbered about 30 Black women and girls. God bless them, because they said yes. They entered, you know, art and artifact that was significant to their experience, because that's really what this was about. I said, you know, what is it? that is significant to us, not because somebody else says so, but because we say so. As, um, you know, as Black women came and installed their work in the different rooms, as we looked at each other's stuff, like it was just, like I did not know what it was gonna be, but what she has become, and I still look back with so much fondness on how that, how that came to be. And one of the things that I talk about is that I feel like Germantown called me and called me again and again. And I'm not satisfied that I know enough historically about what Black women must have done on this land that would call forth a Colored Girls Museum. Because I say, the Colored Girls Museum is not here because I say so. The Colored Girls Museum is here because she said so. She said so. That was Vashti Du Bois on her story about coming to Germantown and creating the Four Colored Girls Museum. Special thanks to our former colleagues, Nicole Curry, Jeanette Woods, and Katie Davis for their work on the Germantown Voices Collection. In Germantown, it is about that time. If you have a story that you want to hear covered, please contact us at gtown.infohub at gmail.com. You can also check us out on Twitter and Instagram at gtown infohub, Facebook at Germantown Infohub, and on our website at www.germantowninfohub.org. Additionally, we encourage our listeners to text the Equally Informed Philly text line which is another program under Resolve Philly. It allows Philadelphians to access information regarding Philadelphia services. The Equal Info Line is a free bilingual English and Spanish question and answer texting service that provides vetted local news and resources to subscribers. To start asking some questions, you can text Equal Info to 73224. Equally Informed also supplies a community-driven print newsletter available at health centers and libraries all over the city. And that's about it. I am Rashida Jamu, AKA Philly Freedom John. I thank you to our neighbors for listening and engaging as always. Thank you to our guests for speaking with us today. And until next time, good night, Germantown.